0: This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right, yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing
1: for the singing of our national anthem. He said, "Britain is just a small island that no one pays attention to." A former colony won the right to determine its own destiny.
2: Hello and welcome back to Mid-Atlantic. As you've probably heard me say before, uh, Mid-Atlantic is part of the Agora Podcast Network, a network of great independently produced podcasts from all over the world. Uh, each month we nominate a show to specifically to promote, and this month is Dominic Perry's excellent The History of Egypt podcast. Um, why don't you go over to the Agora Podcast Network or to iTunes or Stitcher or a podcast of your choice today to give it a listen. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. Today, I'm joined by the journalist and map geek John Elledge in London and by the Democratic Party operative Reggie Hubbard in Washington, D.C. Say hello, gentlemen. Hello.
3: Hello. I'm actually in Vegas
2: headed back to D.C., but hello. Reggie Hubbard from Washington, D.C. Now you're <laughs> going to say you're actually from Maryland, aren't you? Indeed. Okay, fantastic. On the day that sees France go to the polls for its first round of presidential voting, we ask, will the Labour Party be destroyed by May's snap election? And are we normalising President Trump?
4: I have just chaired a meeting of the cabinet where we agreed that the government should call a general election to be held on the 8th of June. I want to explain the reasons for that decision what will happen next and the choice facing the British people when you come to vote in this election. Last summer, after the country voted to leave the European Union, Britain needed certainty, stability and strong leadership. And since I became Prime Minister, the government has delivered precisely that. Despite predictions of immediate financial and economic danger... Since the referendum, we have seen consumer confidence remain high, record numbers of jobs and economic growth that has exceeded all expectations. We have also delivered on the mandate that we were handed by the referendum result. Britain is leaving the European Union and there can be no turning back. And as we look to the future... The government has the right plan for negotiating our new relationship with Europe.
2: Uh, the Observer, John, has a poll survey which indicates that the Tory party has doubled its lead over Labour to 19 points since Theresa May's announcement of a general election <laughs> on June yes. the 8th. What path is there that doesn't lead to a Tory landslide and the destruction of the Labour party?
5: OK, well, the first thing to say is I think we're talking about the same poll uh is the i certainly saw a poll last night that has the conservatives on 50 percent there has not been a poll putting any party on 50 percent since uh there are a couple before the blair landslide in the mid 90s mm-hmm. uh
1: so
5: and, and I, I saw that top line number and i'm not exaggerating the slightest when i say i literally screamed when i read that in the pub toilet oh no uh, yeah is that so, where you I mean, do a lot of your pontification i keep i keep up with my polling at all times no matter how inappropriate but, <laughs> but yeah okay there is there is nonetheless a a plausible version of this election in which the tories i mean the tories are going to win just just get that out of the way there is no chance that they're not going to win they're going to increase their majority however I mean, some of these more extreme polls do suggest Tory majorities of, you know, 100, 120, even 150, which is, you know, that's that's crazy numbers. This is the kind of this will be the biggest Tory election victory since 1935. Mm-hmm. But that's not necessarily going to happen because, firstly, nobody seriously thinks Jeremy Corbyn. As leader of the Labour Party can possibly win and become Prime Minister. So therefore, I think a lot of conservatives or a lot of swing voters who will be voting conservative will be feeling less motivated than normal because, you know, what are they it doesn't matter if they vote. The Tories are gonna win anyway. So so turnout is probably gonna be down. Also, we're all a bit sick of elections because we keep having these major elections basically every year at the moment. Everyone's tired of it. You you bring those things together, you've got an unpopular Labour leader, whoever knows can't win, you've got a foregone conclusion result, and you've got sort of election fatigue. I think it is possible we're looking at a very low turnout and Labour may be surprised on the upside. Now, they're going to lose seats, they're going to lose probably quite a lot of seats, measured in dozens, I would think, but there is a version of events in which maybe the touring majority is 50 or 60 as opposed to the more extreme numbers suggested by those polls and maybe that Labour's numbers drop down from i think it's 230 at the moment maybe they drop down to say the 190 180 something like that as opposed to some of the more extreme versions that put them at like 120 which would be that's a historic loss so it, there, there is still surprisingly some tension John, in this election you know what thing. you sound
2: to me like like an optimist and I I'm, is this the John Lillidge that
5: I know and love? <laughs> I mean, I did hit my head on something earlier. So, <laughs> right. I mean, the, the other part of your question was, you know, can the Labour Party escape destru- destruction? And plausibly, it, the other part of your question was, can the Labour Party uh, escape total destruction? And it's kind of difficult to know what is for the best from the Labour Party's point of view, because obviously it kind of, There is going to be a Labour leadership race after this, because once once Corbyn's lost the election, there will certainly be another leadership challenge as we had last summer. I don't think he'll go without being pushed, but somebody will challenge him. Um, You honestly think if the Labour Party loses, let's say,
2: uh, 50 seats, right, that he won't get up and walk away?
5: No, he won't. I really don't think he will. He, he will probably start talking about how he will step down maybe in the autumn once they've had a chance to restructure the Labour Party rules to make it easier for left candidates to, to be a successor, which is uh, something called the McDonald Amendment, which I can't remember. The, don't make me – the details are very boring. But it means that I think it's you need nominations from fewer MPs to get on the ballot. So that would make it easier for, for someone from Corbyn's wing of the party – To get nominated and and take over, so he may sort of start talking about how he will step down once he's got that constitutional change through. But he's not just going to sort of wake up the morning after the election and say, "Well, I screwed that one up, lads. Someone else's go." Because his goal has always been to capture the Labour Party for for the um, the hard left and to kind of bring it drag it away from the centre. Because that whole wing of the party sort of believes that the pendulum will swing back. Eventually, people will be sick of the Tories and ready to elect a Labour government. And at that point, they need to be in control of the Labour Party so it's a proper left-wing Labour government. That is the thinking there.
2: Mm. Um, Reginald, um, how much of uh, UK news have you managed to uh, be
3: abreast of uh, this week, considering you've been rather busy yourself? I think that uh, what John just said in terms of the left, trying to seize the narrative of a major party is kind of the story of my life at interim. Um, <laughs> well, well, it's interesting
2: and, because I, there are massive, uh, you know, analogies, but they're slightly yeah. different in that the democratic party went into the last election with a leader who was very unpopular, but was leading in the polls. Whereas the labor party has a leader who's very unpopular, but are down massively in the polls. Right. So you know, uh, how does a party dig itself out of uh, the hole of actually having a leader who's a liability?
3: Well, it's a great—that's a great question. The, the, the focus of the work I've done in the past week is I've been on the front lines of uh, the Bernie Sanders, Tom Perez DNC reunion—not unity tour, mm-hmm. um, subtitled "Come Together, Fight Back." And over the course of the week, uh, I, I opened the show in Portland, Maine, and I did the show yesterday morning in Las Vegas. And uh, in the beginning of the week, um, my goal was for Tom Perez to either receive tepid applause or maybe a smattering of boos um, from from Bernie's people. Uh, and in Vegas, um, it was it was a, over the course of the week something something shifted. Um, I think Tom Perez should be commended uh, for having the courage to even addressing the, the Bernie wing of the party because. No, it's kind of like going into a situation knowing you're going to get screamed at and then doing it anyway. Um, So to answer your question about how um, a party comes back, there needs to be a period of honest honesty and truth telling. And I think that's what's happening in the Democratic Party here. I mean, you still have your skeptics. You still have people who are litigating past disputes. You know, there's so many people like we need to get rid of superdelegates and all this other garbage. And there are people like myself, I told this one woman point blank, I was like, ma'am, you're talking to someone who was on the front lines of the Bernie Sanders experience for a year, and who at the Democratic Convention had to produce our concession. And I have somehow found a way to be on the front lines of the reconciliation. And I was in the guts of it. So if I had a direct personal experience, and you only saw it on the news, I think that you can somehow find a way to get over it. Mm -hmm. And those are the type of conversations that need to happen. You know, um, the Democratic Party needs and needed to come to a reckoning of the malfeasance that played a role in how people have a skeptical view of it now. Um, And there are some people who will continue to have that negative outlook of what happened in the past. But there are some people who, now that they've had a chance to air their grievances and or voice their displeasure, are keen on coming back together. And so, I think, absent that, uh, creating space for people to have that opportunity to speak what is on their heart, you cannot have healing, and you can't have genuine reconciliation.
2: What reconciliation, uh, John, can the from the left have, and I'm including the Lib Dems in this um, post this election? Because let, let's think about this logically. The Lib Dems are going to increase their amount of seats. They can't go back any further. Um, disgruntled um, remainers or remoners, depending on who you speak to as to what they're called, um, are going to um, go for the Lib Dems because they're the the one of the you know the only one of the major political parties that are saying we still need a position in Europe. What happens to a potentially squeezed Labour Party if the Lib Dems are resurgent? And then, what type of Dem- uh, what type of Labour Party leader do we have post? Uh, this new election.
5: God, asking me all the big questions today. Um, mm. I, I think firstly we need to um, put the concept of the Lib Dem surge in in some kind of context. They've currently got nine MPs out of six hundred and fifty, and if they get up to I don't know thirty, that is an amazing result for them. And it's kind of hard to see them getting even anywhere close to their number before the 2015 election when they had like 54 or something like that. They're not going to get anywhere close to that just because the winnable seats aren't there for them. So they could end up with quite an impressive vote share that doesn't translate into seats. Labour, by contrast, could probably see quite a big collapse in their vote while still ending up with, you know, 130, 140, 150 seats. So it's, you know, it it. it those two parties vote shares are going to get a lot closer together but nonetheless the labor party is going to remain by far the most dominant electoral force um in terms of what what lessons we can learn about sort of bringing the left back together i have literally it's so difficult to know what what the aftermath of this is going to look like until we get there because i mean we don't know how many of of corbyn's supporters on on the left are the kind of true believers who are going to sort of keep backing him regardless and say, oh, well, it's all the fault of of Labour centrists. It's all the fault of the right of the party. It's all the fault of, of cynics and the media like myself. And how many are going to go, maybe he just isn't popular and we need to move on. And we're not going to know that. Not not only do we need to have the election first, we also need to get some way into the inevitable Labour leadership campaign before we're going to have any real sense of of what the landscape is going to look like, I think.
2: Uh, Reggie back over to you the one thing which really separates uh, the UK and the US kind of elections and the political climate is the fact that there is the resistance movement uh, over there Um, how much of the Democratic Party's energy at the moment is actually the tail wagging the dog is is, is it actually the members is it actually people actually out there um, against all things Trumpian and of which then the Democratic Party leadership is then having to react to, because as I said, we don't have a similar thing actually over here. Uh, for all of the forty-eight percent of uh, UK citizens or UK subjects who didn't want to vote for uh, for us to leave the the uh, European Union, there hasn't been the same groundswell of people um, actually, um, you know, venting their anger in a very palpable way, like we have like we've seen over in america
3: so the democratic party is actually in an interesting moment and um where it's being retooled and reborn um so in terms of the tail wagging the dog i don't really think at present there is enough infrastructure within the dnc to basically basically there are there are millions of people who are upset and the way that our, the, our republic and I, I tell this to people all the time when we unfortunately have a consumerist mindset in our politics right now where they're like, the party has to prove something to me, blah, blah, blah. They actually the way that our republic is set up is that when people rise, change happens. If you're waiting on an establishment entity to make change, then you are in the wrong country. Um, the way that things happen here is people get people get incensed in March, and then parties tend to take hold thereof. Um, I think that there's an opportunity here within the Democratic Party, because there's a new chairman, because the entire institution is being revamped, that the two can marry each other. And what President Trump has done, he is probably the best organizing tool that any political movement could have, because he's just an anathema to anything any any liberal person stands for. And what what we've seen in some of these other elections is that even moderate Republicans are are horrified. Um, In in November, there are a lot of moderate Republicans who held their nose and voted for this guy, kind of hoping for the best, and in the short span of 91 days, he's managed to tick off most of the major powers in Asia, uh, drop bombs on the Middle East, uh, try to ruin our already tenuous healthcare situation, and among other things, and, you know, and nullify any appreciable progress we've had in climate change. So when you have that much of, of a disruptive force uh, with, when people who, with people who are already angry, uh, that just kind of like throws butane on an already simmering fire. So I think that to answer your question about the tail wagging the dog, I think that people, the people are upset. And there is a organization and activism that is something that the Democratic Party can take advantage of. And what I'm trying to do with my work is just create opportunities for people to come together. Um, So and in full candor, I don't really care if it's with the Democratic Party or you do independent or you run on your own. I just want people to get involved because the main reason Donald Trump won is because only 55 percent of people voted. Like if we even had like 62 percent, then. Then we wouldn't be in this situation. So the, the former civics teacher in me just wants to see people engaged and kind of use this moment as a, as a learning opportunity. If you're upset, you can't wait for the party, you gotta go run for office. I've had two or three people, this is interesting, who have just seen my rants on Facebook or just seen some of the stuff I've done. They're now they're now in elected office, and they're just like, you know, either town council or selectmen or, or some local office. And I'm just like, so where did you get this impetus to run for office? They were like, well, I was pissed, and I saw that you were doing something, but so I decided to do something, too. So I think that a combination of entrepreneurial political activism with the retooling of the establishment could be very powerful.
5: Can, can I jump in there and say, I think, can I, can I actually ruin everything and question the whole premise of this podcast? I think there are, I, I, I think that there are only... Surface similarities between what's happening in the the u s left and the uk one at the moment because I mean they do I think there are parallels between Bernie and the Corbyn movement. I think both are feeling kind of a bit shocked at how far away office seems at the moment. but nonetheless, the American left is in a much much stronger position. I mean Hillary Clinton did win the popular vote last year. Right. And the, the Democratic Party is still in power in a lot of places. You know, I know it's not I, I, I know it's not in nearly as much power as it as it would like to be. <laughs> yeah. But, but nonetheless, there are still significant pl- uh, roles in in state and local government that are dominated by, by the Democratic Party. Um, mm. Plus, it is a single party, whereas over here, you know, our left is is fragmented. We have the Labour Party has been at war with itself for two or three years now and the you know the polling is a historic low ebb it's you know so i think how basically I am jealous of the mess you guys are in because it's so much better. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well i i think your
2: your uh, your kind of snapshot picture there um kind of kind of holds up in 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 kind of in great detail there john but i, I you you could argue it'd be harder to argue, but you could argue that your average Britain is actually a social Democrat. You know, you do have One Nation Tories, you obviously have the Lib Dems, and then you have uh, the right um, to the centre of of the Labour Party. And, and you know, the, the great swathe of, of those three parties and, and that coalition could actually be um, a very centrist party. Again, I I, I would say that What's happened to the Labour Party is really a lack of focus uh, post post Blair, you know, definitely post Blair if not post Brown, and really it's uh, it's how to deliver um, a message kind of going forward. But but the deliverance of that message, I think, the left um, suffers from having the same problem both sides of the Atlantic. Is it a case of being Um, identity politics or is it class-based etc etc it's just that we've had this massive distorting effect over here which is uh you know the the vote to leave the european union of which uh, one of the things which really uh, has kind of come out to me what, what what reggie said is that it's there was, which is an analogy over here, was there was a certain level of, I'm not going to say voter apathy, but nobody thought that that election was actually going to be lost, even though, lost, there you go, that's Freudian, that election was going to be lost if you were a Remainer, even though the, the, the polls were that tight. And there's a certain level of, on the left, on both sides of the Atlantic, let's say back in, Uh, 2016 a lack of enthusiasm thinking that you're either complacent or that you couldn't affect change the thing that's been significant for me is that the Americans have gone oh my gosh and they've only got this guy for at worst 8 years if not only for 4 years whereas we've put down this historical marker of which the anger is absolutely palpable from that 48% but there's absolutely a lack of any um, real idea of how to move forward with that. But going back, and that's a very long-winded uh,
5: answer to you, John. And I don't think I answered it in a very nuanced way. But if we, look I mean, at, I, 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 I think a lot of that. Sorry to, to interrupt, but I think a lot of that is a function of our our political system. We have a very centralized political system where the vast majority of power goes through Westminster. We have the first past the post electoral system which makes it very hard for parties to to die on nuanced form i, I hear and there's a and side effect of that is, we have tribalism the, the so there reason even though the two John, halves of John, the John, party hate each other they hate the lib dems more
2: <laughs> you are right all right that we that america has this much more decentralized power structure you know you can be big in wyoming uh in wyoming politics in a way that you can't be big in county durham politics all right you know absolutely absolutely however the big example of there being a popular will uh, which has been palpable from the streets and I don't sound like some trotskyite here you know its power on the streets actually was the poll tax in that that was um, people demonstrating and let's forget the riot people demonstrating mass demonstrations uh, year after year of which then when thatcher went major had to backtrack so there is there, so there is an example that you know you can have popular people pressure which eventually those in power have to acknowledge even in an overly centralized political system like we have in the uk
5: Yeah, but the difference with the poll tax was the poll tax was enormously unpopular. Like those riots were reflective of the fact that, you know, it was widely hated. The difficulty we've got with something like Brexit is it's it's widely hated among half the population and widely adored among the other half. So therefore, it's it's much more difficult to come up with a way of kind of exercising kind of that kind of popular pressure because it's always counterbalanced by the other side.
2: Uh, I think you I think you're slightly wrong. Right. And I don't have the poll data in front of me. But I'm sure if I looked at the poll data of who was pro and anti the poll tax in 1988, 89, whenever whenever the heck that exact exactly was, I think about 1990, I really can't remember. I'm sure it was going to be around about 50 50. It's just there was an enthusiasm gap. It's just that the the ones who were against it were absolutely against it, and and really in lots of ways it it, it started the the whole kind of fissure between uh, in the union between England and Scotland because so the Scots were absolutely rabidly against it. But moving back onto uh, our UK election in, in twenty seventeen, what does this do for the union, John? If the Tory party ends up taking, let's say ten seats in scotland and this is the party of the union
5: it's i mean the scottish polling at the moment is is fascinating slash terrifying if you're on the english left as i am um because it's showing you know for a long time the tories were not remotely competitive in scotland um and they were they were fourth party on some measures Whereas now they're very clearly in second place behind the SNP and they're polling in like 33%. They're like, Labour on 18 or something. Labour are doing worse in Scotland than they are in the rest of the UK. So it's it, there is something afoot and we probably will see the Tories making a number of gains in Scotland. For, and most of those have to come from the SNP because you know the SNP hold the vast majority of the seats in Scotland. But we're gonna end up with with um contradictory narratives because the Tories will say, Well, we've we've gained all these seats in Scotland, we're a unionist party, we oppose a second independence referendum, we therefore have a mandate to not deliver that second independence referendum. Whereas Nicola Sturgeon, leader of the Scottish National Party, will say You know, for for the umpteenth election, the Scottish National Party have effectively won the Scottish elections. We want a second independence referendum. We now have a mandate to deliver on that. So basically, everyone's going to be batting heads together. But I I don't think um, uh, even though the the Tories are doing better in Scotland, they're still not going to come out anywhere like on top. Like the SNP are going to be by far the most dominant party out there. And the national government in Westminster will still be seen as almost a sort of foreign occupation. It'll be like, no, Scotland didn't vote for this. Why do we have to put up with a Tory government? That can only strengthen the hand of...
0: Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter.
1: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
5: Of the nationalists who, who want independence, I think.
2: In an uncertain world, there is always music which can be listened to in good company. Welcome to Friday Fifteen, the show where we speak to friends and interesting people to the backdrop of great tunes and allocate fifteen minutes to both.
4: I mean, I was eight years old. Interesting, the same age as the uh, Dragon King's daughter when she comes out of the sea. But um, well, what was happening to me when I was eight years old was, was that I was at the hands of a paedophile in um, in a classroom for a year. And awesome, yeah. And um, for me, I well, and I think the reason that I somehow managed to to win in the end is that for me it's about an economy of the three things that bring a song together
2: catch up with me speaking to friends and interesting people every friday afternoon on friday 15 which you can get of course from a podcatcher of your choice
6: Hello, I'm Lucy and this is Walkie Talkie. I walk my dog, Basil, uh, pretty much every day in a foresty bit of London. Um, I have been doing so for about four years and I meet people that, as a dog walker, you talk to people. Um, If your dogs get on, you tend to just, you say, which way are you going? Can I come with you? and you just sort of amble along and you can end up having the most extraordinary conversations. Partly because uh, you are walking side by side and facing front so there's no embarrassing eye contact. If things get a bit heavy, if someone starts talking about something that they find emotional or difficult then you can always divert your attention onto the dogs and relieve the tension a little bit. We've seen, as a group of dog walkers, we've seen um, people get pregnant, have children. We've seen people whose dogs have become ill and died, and the owner says, Oh, I can never have another one. And then in a couple of months' time, they appear with a puppy, and everyone's delighted to see them. And um, we've seen people's marriages break down, new romances start. It's a lovely way to start your morning. It never fails to give me something, something nice to think about, something interesting to think about, even if it's not nice. And having a dog is a sort of a, a universality, really. The people aren't all like me, as I hope you'll realise over the course of the series.
3: Leading up to the 1860
2: election, in walks a gentleman by the name of Abraham Lincoln, who is the Republican candidate. The Republicans to the South represent the ending of slavery. And Lincoln, despite the fact that his sentiment was always in the beginning to preserve the Union
3: rather than to abolish slavery, becomes the lightning rod of anti-Southern sentiment. And he ends up winning the election in 1860
1: with no support from the South. The Guardian, Manchester, Tuesday, November 20th, 1860. Summary of news, Foreign. The details, respecting the presidential election, furnished by the New York journalist, not complete, but they not only assure us of Mr. Lincoln's election, but show that the Republican Party has obtained far more than the requisite number of votes for his return. It is calculated that New York, Pennsylvania, the New England states, New Jersey, and the Northwestern states give him 171 electoral votes, or 19 more than the majority required for the election, the total number of electoral votes being 303. It is not improbable, too, that this majority may be further swelled by the result of the elections in the Pacific states of Oregon and California. We have no account of the manner in which the Southerners have received the intelligence of Mr. Lincoln's election. The next advices will no doubt be filled with fierce Southern declamations and protest, but it's not very likely that any Southern states will do anything mere than talk loudly about succession.
4: Listen to the first show exclusively on Mixcloud today and subscribe to us on iTunes from
1: Washington to Obama. 10 American Presidents, the new podcast from Royfield Field Brown. You can stop the super liberal Democrats and Nancy Pelosi's group, and in particular, John Ossoff. If you don't vote tomorrow, Ossoff will raise your taxes, destroy your health care, and flood our country with illegal immigrants. I need you to get out to the polls tomorrow, April 18th, and vote Republican.
6: All right, that was a robocall from the president to voters in Georgia's sixth district, where a special election is taking place today to fill HHS Secretary Tom Price's seat.
2: In a week which has seen President Trump not tweet anything too outrageous, and of which which, uh, American bombs have dropped on Syria, Are we getting used to calling Trump President Trump? Over to you in Las Vegas, Reginald Hubbard.
3: I think that there there are two things happening. One is that even among people who are not tethered to the the body politic like me, President Trump has been in office for 90 days. That is it. 90 days. And there is a fatigue that has set in among everyone and I don't know if it's normalization as much as it is fatigue and in some ways too um, he's been humbled you know like he tried to over overhaul Obamacare and they couldn't even bring a vote before the House of Representatives um, and he campaigned virulently about we're going to repeal and replace and blah 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 and it didn't happen. And it didn't happen in a way that was extremely embarrassing uh, to to him and also Paul Ryan. So I think the the notion of normalization is more fatigue, but also I can speak to it from the standpoint of being on the road for uh, the Democratic Party. Um, people are ready to like give this give this gentleman his comeuppance, right? So. There was a race in Kansas that uh, the now director of the CIA, um, Donald Trump won that district by 24 points, and uh, the gentleman, the Democratic challenger, lost by seven. Those swings are ridiculous. Um, In Georgia, in a suburb of uh, Atlanta, which is uh, mostly moderate Republican, a Democrat came within 1.6% of getting the uh, votes necessary to avoid a runoff. Um, But wasn't that a missed opportunity, though, Reggie? Wasn't that a massive um, missed opportunity? Because in that runoff, now- I appreciate your skepticism. I'm going to cut you off at the chase. Like I appreciate your skepticism. Um, we have this thing called gerrymandering here, so like, <laughs> regardless of, it's not a missed opportunity because the playing field isn't level. So, in a in a severely tipped balance, uh, a gentleman got forty nine percent. I I see I see the merit of your argument that it is a missed opportunity, but that is that district is like 24 percent Republican, like up, like in any statistical measure. So, if there, there's a tremendous opportunity to pick that seat up, but to even get so close is a big deal. Um, and we have two uh, governor's races coming up, one in New Jersey, one in Virginia, um, where those those will be the what sets the tone going into 2018. Um, but I think that. Not not normalization, there's fatigue, but also I know that there are people who are very 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 angry and I, I said very because the press that's his favorite, um modifier in the english language um and he likes tremendous too <laughs> <laughs> and bigly and bigly the um but he hasn't said bigly that often, no, but normalization I don't think is true as much as there's been a you know, let's just be honest. The unfortunate reality of the situation is that Donald Trump is going to be in office for at least another three and a half years, or for three and three quarter years. That that is that that is why some of us fought so hard last year because we once you get the office, you have the office. And so, to some extent, there is a normalization by virtue of the fact that you are you are the bully pulpit. You are the you you own everything with respect to the government. Things can and might change in 2018 if there's significant congressional shifts, because Republicans now own all levers of the government. Um, so it'll be interesting to see, but I think there's a fatigue, and he's, he's in office, and so as by virtue of that, he's the president, and he does control the narrative. But having said that, there, there's a storm brewing that could completely undermine anything that he stands
2: for. Oh, right. Ominous. We're going to come back to your brewing storm there, Reginald, in a little bit. Uh, John, wasn't President Donald Trump right when he tweeted on Friday about the ridiculous standard by which he's, he's been judged on, his accomplishments <laughs> which he's done in the last hundred days? <laughs> I, uh, like, I like your I laugh
5: would,
3: there, Reggie.
5: I would actually agree with President Trump that he is being ju- judged on a ridiculous standard. I just think he's he's... We we have different ideas of which which way the standard is wrong here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I there was a line which briefly became a meme during the, the, the Syria bombings. Like, you know, in that moment, he became president. I think that I think Donald Trump became president last night. And it did just feel like a lot of commentators had been waiting for a moment in which they could exhale and say, OK, it's normal. We can just treat this guy as we treat any other president. And, you know, and I think that's that's a natural response, partly because people if people are kind of scared by the idea that something strange is going on. So you kind of want to imagine that this is just another Republican government. I think partly also because the media gets sick of having a single narrative. There There is a fatigue around it. So, like, I mean, to, to briefly go back to the UK election campaign, I would be shocked if we do not see a moment where people are talking about the Corbyn surge because people will be so desperate for something to write that isn't Theresa May's the course for a landslide. They will start sort of clutching at any sort of hints that Labour is recovering in the polls um, and, and start writing that story. I think this was a similar thing where it's like people have just got sick of the, you know, did Russia influence the election story? Is this, is this uh, the start of tyranny story? And they just want to be able to say, actually, it's normal for a bit just because it's something new so i think the the net result of this is that to a great extent he's 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 being judged far too easily they're grading on a curve compared to where they thought he was going to be like while while we've been recording this in fact i've just spotted some polling uh which shows that uh, the number of uh trump voters who think he's been worse than expected is just 2% the number who think he's outperforming their expectations is 62 so, you know, people are people are giving this guy a, an easy ride. Mm.
2: Uh, Reggie, moving back on to uh, moving on to, shall we say, U.S. foreign policy. Um, things are settling down, aren't they? Uh, Russia is now. Uh, evil Russia again, where co- America is cozying up to China, even people on the left, people who were part of the Obama administration have actually said, you know what? Assad had those bombs are coming, right? Uh, And all of a sudden, NATO um, isn't broken anymore. We are seeing, um, if not a normalization of Trump, but his policies are more, becoming more in line with the American mainstream, aren't they? I
3: think that, um, again, again, I, I retreat to what I said earlier, that by virtue of the fact that he has the office that there, there is an unfortunate reality that whatever comes out of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue is the writ of who we are as a nation. Um, that is just how this goes. Like in the same way that conservatives, to some extent, um, once Obama did the healthcare bill, having said that again, there is a tremendous, uh, and representing what John said earlier about this guy's getting an easy ride. Um, There are people who have never even considered running for office that are running for office. And I said this to one of my friends last week, that in a world um, with respect to Bernie Sanders and his um, political uh, um, 501c4, our revolution, in a world where Hillary Clinton was president, our revolution didn't make any sense or as much sense. Um, In a world where Donald Trump is president, our revolution is perfect um there are thousands of people that are at least taking the leap into running for office um at local levels at national levels bernie sanders is touring the the country um aggressively stumping stumping for people with progressive vision uh so while at one level there is a normalization of the trump administration by virtue of the fact that he's not going anywhere anytime soon unfortunately um, there is an undercurrent of people who are well, while they're, while Trump voters may be happy with him, there, there are 65 million people that did not vote for this guy. Um, and probably another 30 million if they actually voted that are like, what is happening? Uh, so I think that with respect to the, to you, with respect to your question about foreign policy, Hopefully there are, you know, the Merkels of the world um, and, and other people can help us out because, you know, there are significant flaws in the way I view the president is conducting his foreign policy with respect to North Korea, all the saber rattling. Um, I don't really know why you would need to drop an 11 ton bomb on anyone um, when when there's diplomacy and other means. Um he is serving his base with respect to his. You dropped uh, that bum, Reggie, because
2: your poll numbers are really bad and you need to look good. That's the reason why you dropped the bum. Surely.
3: Indeed. um, Which, but at the same time, it's being reported that people wanted to see that, but you know, what's not being reported, like I said, over 20,000 people that that we saw this week and the millions online who are just like enough is enough. John, I,
2: it's a kind of a recurrent theme in, in this show anyway, uh, the difference between the enthusiasm, or and you would say they have the avenues, but the enthusiasm of the normal American to resist, to protest, to make a stand against uh, polities and, uh, and a president of which they don't like. Um, do you think that the creation of Metro mayors will set in... <laughs>
5: i've asked no, a sorry, very please, serious please question continue with your question
2: all right please okay. ask me if the let mayor me of get Birmingham, to the answer box. let me get to the answer that the creation of metro mayors this year will at least start ignite regional polar politics within the uk and let's say england here and actually will create much more civic debate going forward I think I mean,
5: I'm very much in favour of Metro mayors, which I mean to be clear for the international audience, Metro mayors are basically just mayors across entire metropolitan areas, which is kind of what we already have in London, and we're getting them in a number of the other the other major cities. Uh, and you know i'm I'm very much in favour of them, partly because this country is ludicrously over um and partly because, yeah, I think they can help create a civic identity. I mean, I grew up on on the outskirts of London. In an area that uh, while officially part of Greater London never really felt like it and I think having a single mayor has kind of turned uh, Greater London into a single polity and I think hopefully these mayors will do the same for Greater Manchester and the Liverpool region and the West Midlands. Um, Greater Birmingham yeah yeah you can't you'll get letters from wolverhampton i've tried calling it that before <laughs> uh, but it's but you know this is this is a hell of a long way off and these are going to be fairly weak posts um they're not even going to be that strong by the standard of mayors let alone something like the u.s states uh and and also no one's really paying that much attention to these elections like i was i was excited about them because it's my beat uh and Uh, But, you know, literally nobody else is paying the slightest attention to the fact that we're having these elections on on May 4th. And now they probably will get some attention, but it won't be because suddenly everyone cares about what it means for the West Midlands. It will be because the West Midlands is quite a marginal area. And therefore, what happens in that election may tell us something about what's going to happen in the important general election that's happening 35 days later so it's and turnout in these things is going to be incredibly low as well in the longer term hopefully it will kind of create these sort of new civic identities and other fora for, for for local political debate but but it's still i it's not even going to be something like the you know the welsh assembly or something which is you know not that powerful as devolved assemblies go because it's one guy you're electing one person you're not electing a whole room full of people who are then going to argue about about a region's future you're just picking the one person so it's i i am very much in favor of them i think they'll help but i don't think they're coming to save us
2: is it fora is not it forums What's uh, the... well
5: hmm. i well I'm, i i'm very I, i'm I had a very posh education so i did latin at school so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Right. Okay.
2: Right. Well my comprehensive education didn't didn't stretch to Latin, so I, I doff my cap and I know my place. You are correct, sir. Um, <laughs> I got an A at GTSE, I'll have you know. <laughs> uh, Reggie, Donald Trump yeah. plans to unveil a major tax reform package on Wednesday, aiming to blunt criticism over the lack of legislative achievements during his first hundred days. Surely his poll numbers can't go down any lower. All you Americans love a tax cut the only way is up
3: yeah so the thing about the tax cut is it doesn't really have anything to do with the common man uh these these proposals are just a retread of trickle down economics and with the composition of the congress it will surely pass because the other the other thing that people need to factor in their political calculus with respect to um, american national politics to have someone in Kansas, which is one of the reddest states in our union, um, lose by six points when you know people usually win there by 24. Um, to have someone in a solidly Republican seat almost win in a runoff, um, it's it's almost May here. And so after so once we get to the June July area, everyone's going to be talking about congressional elections. Uh, people are already catching tremendous flack from their constituents about, like, the repeal of the health care bill and these sorts of things. So legislators have got to come up with serious wins um, to sure that, yeah, these numbers are about Donald Trump. But also, you know, the most self-interested people in Washington, D.C. are congressional members, because if you don't get the vote, you don't have a job. And so a lot of these people feel tremendous pressure to produce something because what they don't want to have happen is that there's a lot of gridlock, and and how can you have all three three branches of like you have the, you have the House of Representatives, you have the Senate, and you have the executive branch, and you can't pass anything. Mm-hmm. So I think they need a win, and while the narrative will be it's a tax cut for everyone, the reality that's not the reality. And what I, I envision is that it'll even further energ- energize the, the the American left because we'll be like, look, here we go again. Um, the big boys are getting tax breaks and you don't even, no one even cares about you. And the other thing that I will mention is that with respect to what John said earlier about Trump's people supporting him, there are significant people who I've heard from and or talked to that um, realize that they got conned. Right? So there's been a bit of a bait and switch. And I don't know if that's factored into polling as yet, and I don't know quite how you quantify that, but there are people who thought Donald Trump had their best interests at heart that when he released his budgetary, uh, when when he released his budget a couple weeks ago, they cut meals meals on wheels, which feeds like indigent people, um, the uh, elderly and the handicapped. They were like, oh my God, so this is who this guy really is? So... It'll be interesting to see. I think it will pass because they have the votes. Um, but what the what the net effect of that passage is, I'm not quite sure. And to your point, I don't think any president um, in the first 90 days has had polls in the mid to low 30s. That's that's like Richard Nixon territory. For and for anyone who knows American politics, like he's the one who resigned. We're going to move on, gentlemen, to
2: takeaways of the week. So, as always, I don't have one, so I'm going to go last. But I know <laughs> that for a, for a change, John, you've come furnished with one. You're the yes. first thing to go. So, uh, yes. Over, yes. In, yes. over in London, John Ellidge, knock us over with your takeaway, please, sir.
5: So, yeah, the real world is so terrible at the moment time. I'm obviously taking, uh, I'm finding sanctuary and imaginary ones. Uh, and at the moment i'm very much enjoying a, a tv series called the expanse which is uh which which is sort of it's quite realistic as sci-fi goes in that there's no such faster than light travel and you know it's only within the solar system and it's quite sort of you know, gritty political stuff uh there aren't many jokes in that i will say there's not as many jokes as i'd like but you know it's a very sort of compelling story it's quite political and I've been enjoying it so much that I finally gave in and I started reading the series of books that it's based on and there's like six of these things and they're like 500 pages long so that's really me sorted for the rest of the year so if anybody out there wanted to to um, watch the show or read those books too that would be nice because then I'd have someone to talk to about it hmm.
2: oh, and what channel is that on?
5: Um, I think I, you know I don't know where it broadcast. i broadcast mean, the first series is on Netflix Bab uh
2: over to you in Las Vegas Reggie your turn to shine sir.
3: So with respect to takeaway from the week uh, like I said, my week has been on the road again in service to the democratic narrative of healing and reconciliation. And what I have seen and, and witnessed is while you know there are people who are very passionate and some are still angry, there is a oh, there's an overwhelming interest in putting aside uh, putting aside past disputes and moving forward. Um, I think that 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 personally for me gives me the energy that I need to continue to be in the middle of this mess. Um, I can honestly say I believe it's a beautiful mess and you know no one can quite forecast like electoral success but my takeaway is that when you create space, and give people an opportunity to air their grievances, healing and reconciliation will take place, um, and then you can move forward to get about the real work. Uh-huh. Um,
2: my takeaway has been that um, I've just, I've never fallen out of love with maps. I was gonna say I've fallen in love with maps again, and I, your ears are gonna prickle <laughs> here, Mr. John. Um, I, Ever since I was a little boy, I adored maps. I used to draw my own maps of imaginary cities, name all the roads, and then as I became older and really got into political geography, why countries are shaped the way that they are, I drew I drew my own continents and all this kind of malarkey. But you're just reading out my (laughs) words. But underneath all of that, underneath all of that, was there is something deeply beautiful about cartography um aesthetically it can be incredibly pleasing and what i've really been bowled over by in the last four weeks on another one of the podcasts that i do i think called dumby dum which is a show about where we talk about the archers my love of maps has been been well known and slowly but surely people have been tweeting me maps uh so so much so that i've started doing map of the week This does sound a bit familiar john and um and the first map that I got when I just had to say I did had to, have to do this map of the week thing about about a month ago was a map taken uh, map created in 1955 of the arrests by the Metropolitan Police of gentlemen for inopportune uh, behavior, i.e. they were caught having sex either in toilets or you know, asking police officers um, if, if they were up for some for some gay fun. And the reason why this map was, um, is really important, because the year afterwards was the Wolfenden Report, which started the decriminalisation of, uh, homosexual, of homosexual acts um, in the UK. So when, when I got it, it was just like absolutely fascinating to see all these dots all over central London. Uh, and the fact that you know the metropolitan police were, were keeping such a thing keeping record of it but it's actually kind of what it started and then i bookend that with the great scone map which i was just given um about three hours ago which shows you which bits of the uk uh pronounce scone as scone as in as gone or scone as in or scone as in scone sorry and it's just been absolutely lovely just actually just to see how beautiful some of these maps actually are some some of them are are pretty brutal but some of them have beautiful colors beautiful contours and another one which i got which was really just a a visual feast was um the Mm. various courses of the mississippi river over time and it's just this swirl of colors and you just look at it and you just want to blow it up you know five foot by five foot and put it on your wall because just as an abstract piece of art. It's just absolutely beautiful. So maps for me, uh, and no, John, I'm not not reading your your personal website, but you know we do have a few things in common, and also just the fact that there's a community of people who know that I love these things and are pinging them to me. So those are my takeaways of the week. That so maps are a wonderful thing, and um, don't even get me started on Muir's historical atlas, something which uh, a book which I I had as a kid, and it just fell to pieces after about three years because I kept on going back over it and looking at the shape of the uh, Holy Roman Empire and how it kept on changing. Through the decades, so that's my takeaway of the week, uh, gentlemen. It's been good to have you all all together again. Um, John Ellidge, right, what well. are you up to at the moment, and how can people catch up with you on social media?
5: I'm mostly being very angry about the election, uh, and you can find me doing that uh, either on my my main my day job, which is editing CityMetric.com of or, or my columns in the New Statesman or you can just find me on Twitter where I'm at John Elledge which is J-O-N-N-E-L-L-E-D-G-E or actually no, I, since the last time I did this I've now got a Facebook page and it's got pathetically few likes so please go like my Facebook page because I'm quite new <laughs> mm.
2: Reggie Hubbard uh, what are you up to at the moment we've kind of told us but just remind us tell us where you're going next and how can people can catch up with your mini goings on our social media as well
3: uh, I am headed home in about an hour uh, to the D.C. metro area. After a week of pouring my soul into healing the democratic apparatus, I'm going to pour my soul into my yoga studio and be off the grid for a couple of days. Um, I'm the inverse of Mr. Elledge, where my Facebook page is Reginald Hubbard. That's where a lot of my musings go. Um, my Twitter feed is O-Reggie Global, that is very sparse at the moment but i'm getting the impetus to get that going uh and my last question for you royfield is what was the name of the continents that you made what was the name of your favorite one (laughs) well here's here's a thing right my cousins and i
2: were proper geeks Right, so yes. we created a whole series of, of continents and kept them going for years. We had wars against each other. We wrote down our histories <laughs> in books. My my country was called Sergeant Tina and its uh, capital was Antingham. Um, yes.
5: My Sergeant my... Tina, yeah, in, I, oh, yes. Sergeant Tina.
2: I was, I was yes. eight. I was eight, but I did keep this going okay. to about the age of yes. 15, about thirteen, though right we've yeah. had our own football leagues this was a serious thing uh my yeah. cousin um i defeated him in a major war because we used to do war gaming <laughs> his country was uh well his country was called manon and okay, uh, yeah, and his capital was uh was montego city because we you know jamaican parents and all uh and i took i i managed to conquer his western coast and and uh he had to cede uh the city of jamaica city to me and all the environs around that but this was a a serious thing but this is that's so great oh man but we kept it going for years that that was the amazing thing you know we'd always draw 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 these maps and as i say muir's historical atlas for me was just the the absolute gateway drug into the, where the, the confluence of geography and, and history and, you know, just human human geography. I just love, love that thing. And uh, seeing the Holy Roman Empire, with all these little patchwork of colors or these various different uh, bishoprics and um, uh, principalities uh, bounded by this red line. You know, because the, the, the Holy Roman Empire's writ was, was very weak and it wasn't really a, a unified country. Just just fascinated the bejesus out of me and led me down a path of loving German medieval German history. A little boy from Birmingham. But anyway, you can catch me uh, on Twitter where I'm at Fils, but R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D. What am I doing this week? I'm editing more podcasts. I'm falling in massively in love with what, my new show, Friday 15, where I do um, three bits of music, and then speak to somebody interesting about a random topic. And we've had it's you on, show. Reggie. Thank you, Reggie. We're gonna to have to have you on, John. Uh, you you can talk about uh, maybe we can talk about maps.
5: Yeah, we should it's do that. I yeah, yeah, yeah. Map maps make great radio, I found.
2: Well, so. a- absolutely, mm. and, and even better podcasts,
3: even better podcasts. Um, gonna, me, let me add one more thing. I I'm an Instagram fanatic, and my Instagram is OReggieGlobal as well. Ah, all right
2: thank you for, for for shoehorning that in um mid atlantic show is where you can also catch us up on twitter um i sporadically tweet out uh, from mid-atlantic show but do go follow us on there whenever there is a new show up i do announce it there uh, we do have a, a page on facebook so go follow us on facebook quite simply just type in mid-atlantic and one thing dear listener which you can do is write us a review on facebook we know it's un- it's not very british to ask and to beg so i'm not begging i'm asking politely do the right thing this thing is free give us a nice review on itunes this has been me in Birmingham speaking to John Ellidge in London and Reggie Hubbard in Las Vegas. Say goodbye, gentlemen. Goodbye.
4: Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans.
3: Goodbye, all. Ciao for now.